it's upsetting because I don't get paid by the government any longer. So I don't need to be fearful. I don't work for anybody. I don't have another agenda. So I don't need to do anything except share the truth because that's my purpose in this lifetime. I came here to help and help and heal others. And I just want to speak the truth. Welcome to episode one. Our title is Ask the Expert, the Epidemiology of COVID-19. Our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Rogers, PhD, MPH, epidemiologist. Elizabeth, I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Dr. Rogers is an epidemiology and holistic healer. She received her master's degree in public health and epidemiology and her doctorate in epidemiology with a focus on understanding the barriers associated with modifier risks and chronic disease and disability prevention. She's alumni of University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health and has over 15 years of professional and academic experience in various roles in the continuum of healthcare, public health, and research. With that in mind, Elizabeth, it is a pleasure to have you a part of our inaugural post. Thank you so much. I'm really honored and excited to be here today. So can I just say, if I could just check one of those things that you've done, I would feel like I would be accomplished. (laughs) That's funny because I always feel like I'm just getting started no matter what I do. Well, from my perspective, you are very well versed and very well educated. So I think that you're the perfect guest to have on our podcast today, um, considering the current state of the world, um, as we're going, we're all going through the pandemic of COVID-19 together. Um, but before we get into COVID-19, can you, can you kind of just explain what is epidemiology? So it's in the news a lot. It's sort of a buzzword, but like, what is epidemiology in the the field study exactly? Well, I love that question. And, you know, when people ask me what kind of doctor I am, and I say I'm an epidemiologist, I typically get one of two responses. Either people guess that I'm a skin doctor, which I can understand they might be thinking epidemiology has something to do with the epidermis or the skin, or they just have absolutely no idea what it is. And I love to teach and mentor. So it makes me happy to have an opportunity to teach our listeners and teach the world what epidemiologists really are and how valuable our profession is. So I'm an epidemiologist. What that means is that I study and determine the patterns and causes of health issues. Very drilled down to its simplest definition, that's what it is. Now, if you looked up the definition of epidemiology, depending on the reference or the textbook, it will say something like, epidemiology is the study of the frequency, distribution, and determinants or causes of any health issue or outcome and the application of that study to the control of those health outcomes, issues, or diseases with the ultimate goal being the improvement of the health of the population or of groups of the population. So just like any other doctor or field, epidemiologists also have specialties. Some of us specialize in the environment, so we can study things like air quality, pollution, safety, and many more other things. Some of us specialize in infectious diseases. 
some in things like injury prevention and control, cancer, and chronic diseases. And those are just a few of the areas of specialty. My areas of expertise personally are chronic diseases, disability, and aging. And I merge these expertise with my expertise as a holistic healer because it's my passion. That's amazing. And I, and I, when I read the, and you talked to me about being a holistic healer, um, I was extremely excited to talk to you because I had never really met a doctor with that perspective. Maybe they exist, but I had never really met one yet. So I think I understand now in terms of the epidemiology, epidemiology, but, um, so basically you just study pan diseases and why they happen. Right. So we study not just the, the causes, but also the patterns, you know, and the patterns allow us to understand what factors may be contributing to the prevalence of a disease or a health issue. So what factors are maybe either increasing the risk or increasing the existence of the disease, which is really what prevalence means. Prevalence means how many cases are there currently in existence? And so we, yeah, we study and determine those patterns and those causes. And okay. it's fascinating. And it, it kind of seems like all the, you know, anyone on TV talking about this is acting as if they're an epidemiologist, but this is a real field of study. Yeah. And, you know, it takes the education to know how to do it properly, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, it does. And I appreciate that you made that comment because I've noticed that myself. And, you know, epidemiology, especially the the science and the methodology that's behind it all is, is very sophisticated and mathematically complex. And because of that, there are a lot of bias that come along with that. And I think it's important that we have at least somebody like me who's able to talk with people and say, hey, you know, yes, we're sharing this scary data, but here are some things to keep in mind, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of people out there acting like epidemiologists right now, but we're really behind the scenes doing all the work. Right. I completely understand and understand the value of, of your industry. Um, so, yeah. So, Marnie, does that make sense to you, too? I think that you were a little confused, too. Yeah, it, it's it's such a complex technical term. Um, but, Dr. Rogers, you've made that a lot more clear. Um, and it's easy for people to say, I know how this is going uh, but it's nice to know that there's actual people behind it who understand what's going on. Uh, with this constant changing for the coronavirus and the COVID-19 evolving over the last uh, three months or so, um, what sticks out to you the most um, with this evolution? You know, this is such a great question because I think although our, mis our understanding of the virus certainly has evolved. There have been, and there still is, so much misinformation and misinterpretation out there. You know, this lends itself to some of the comments we were all just making to one another, but it has bothered me to sit by and observe the fear that is being instilled in the population that I care about around me, while I see no efforts to put an epidemiologist in front of the media to explain how to appropriately interpret the data that's being shared, and also to explain the many, many biases that come along with it. So I hope as we're talking today, I can continue to shed light wherever I can. 
you know, I know that it's difficult for people to be patient at this time, but the truth is really that time is what we as epidemiologists, scientists, and researchers need to really learn about the virus. You know, initially when the government asked us all to stay at home for 15 days, which we all know was much more than 15 days ago at this point, one of the primary reasons this was being done was to give scientists, researchers, epidemiologists time. And that time was for us to learn and understand as much as possible about the virus and time to determine if our infrastructures were really prepared and equipped to support this outbreak. And of course, during that time, we did learn some things. You know, I Mm -hmm. would love to share some of those things along the way today as we talk, and I'll lead in lead into what about this all sticks out to me the most. But, you know, what I'd like to share with everyone is I'm sure what you've all heard that there are a lot of theories out there about how the virus has gotten to the point that it's at right now. You know, the virus was already, the coronavirus was already a virus that existed in animals. So there's a lot of terminology out there being used called the new coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, but this is only novel in humans. It already did exist prior to that, to now. And I'm sure that people have heard some of the myths and theories floating around out there, like the bat soup theory. Mm-hmm. I explain the truth to you all today, and I can explain to you also why this cannot be accurate. So the coronavirus, before this pandemic started, it lived in bats. And it didn't bother the bats, and the bats lived their lives undisturbed by the coronavirus, right? Lots of animals have viruses that live in them all of the time, just like people do. And we, for the most part, go undisturbed throughout our lifetimes because we have immune systems that keep those things at bay and and keep us healthy. Now, with the coronavirus coming from bats, the issue is that bat viruses typically do not infect humans. This is because the differences between our immune systems, the bat's immune systems compared with ours as humans is so very great that another animal intermediary source was likely needed in order to transmit the virus to humans. So this would mean it would have needed another small animal host in order to attenuate the virus. And what attenuate the virus really just means is that, um, which means to train and teach the virus to infect an immune system that was closer to that of a human being. So it's not possible that the virus jumped from uncooked soup into humans in a market in Wuhan. It actually makes no sense at all. We know this from research. We actually have done studies on the coronaviruses prior to the pandemic starting. And we cannot study a virus and understand how it causes disease in an animal unless we grow enough copies of it in a lab. So in research, the animal intermediary would never be another animal, but it would be things like an animal cell line or animal tissues that we repeatedly grew in a laboratory because those things are needed in order to, for the virus to live. So these viruses, when they jump from one species to another, can cause serious disease. And that's what we're seeing now. The coronavirus is actually called an obligate parasite. And because of some of the fear I'm hearing, I really want to explain to everybody what exactly that means today. I know a lot of people are scared right now about what's going on, how long this is going to last. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about this today, but 
What an obligate parasite means, which is what this coronavirus is, is that it requires a host to live. The virus needs your cells and your cell tissues to live and to stay alive. This also means that it is not possible for the virus to spread from human to human by healthy humans coughing. That's not how it happens. Viruses do not, I just want to say that one more time, they do not float through the air. They actually cannot live in the air. They need to live within another organism. So viruses themselves are not alive. They are actually just proteins or nucleic acid. That is all that they are. They need a host cell or a tissue to thrive and also to replicate themselves. So they could actually sit dormant in your system, just like a seed before it grows into a plant. And viruses do not travel six feet in the air and live on their own. I can tell you, I can promise you, it is actually not possible. They need water droplets with cells from you inside the water droplets, such as cells from your nasal cavity because you sneezed, to live inside of. Otherwise, they will dry out. If you dry them out, they they cannot survive. And, you know, the truth is what sticks out to me the most is that we don't know a lot, right? What we do know is that 25% of people who become infected never become symptomatic and actually get the disease COVID-19. On top of that, another 40 to 50% of people who become infected will only get a mild case of symptoms. Now, on top of that, as scientists, we likely only have about 25%, if that, of the data that we really need to properly evaluate the outcomes. So what we do know is that we can make our bodies and immune systems as strong as possible, but the media doesn't talk about this. You know, the government officials don't talk about this. Our conventional health professionals are not talking about this. So social distancing and quarantine are pieces of the puzzle, but that's all that they are. And we're excluding a significant piece of the puzzle, which is prevention. And that's what sticks out to me the most. It's like this neon flashing light that I really, I can't ignore. I completely understand what you're saying. And so just to to bring it out of the science uh, terminology, uh, basically um, you're stating, and um, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but the the virus itself cannot live alone. It is spread if it's in something like a bodily fluid. Um, right. Could it also be spread like initially for like from the bat to from a tick or like a bat from a virus? Did it need that kind of of transmission or is it still more in the? Or is it just such an unknown on how it made that leap from the original animal to be able to live in the new hosts? Well, I think that we may never, as the public, be told exactly what the truth is behind how the virus did make that leap, right? Because like you're pointing out and you you understood from what I explained that it took, there would have been some some steps that needed to take place in order for the 
virus to be able to transmit from the bat to the human. So how did that actually come to be? Is it likely that we that the bat directly transmitted this virus to humans? No, it's very unlikely. Is it likely that we were studying this virus in a laboratory setting and that somehow that was what was able to release this virus in a way that it was able to infect somebody? Yes, that's likely. Um, it's likely we were studying the lab, we were studying this virus in a lab, and by we, I don't mean myself, but I mean by other scientists, researchers, virologists, were likely studying this virus in a lab, and it likely had something to do with the way it was being studied. You know, what kind of animal intermediary would have been required? Would it could it have been something like a tick or a flea that could have bit a human and been what we call in epidemiology we call that. Um, a vehicle. So there are vehicles and there are, well, there are vehicles and there are vectors. And so a living thing that would transmit something to a human would be considered a vector and something non-living that would transmit it would be a vehicle. So could it be something like a tick or a flea that would be serving as the vector that would transmit the virus to a human? Yes, it is possible, but again, more unlikely than not because the fleas, the ticks, their immune systems, again, more like the bat, don't look as close to that of a human, but it is possible. Okay, so thank you for explaining that in a way that I understood a little bit better because I'll be honest with you, they're like, okay, this didn't come from the, you know, the market. This was originally originated in a Chinese lab or in a, in a lab in Wuhan or what have you. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, I'm thinking they did that on purpose and they were wanting to, you know, cause a war or whatever, or something that they did it on purpose. Right. But you just explained it was, they were probably studying that virus or what have you. And it was an accident essentially. Yes. I I, I, feel a little bit of relief after hearing that. Well, I'm glad. And, you know, let's, I'll say this, what I promise that I will do for everyone today is be honest from the bottom of my heart. I do not get paid by the federal government. So I don't have anything to hide here today. What's most important to me is that I share what's the truth. And the truth is that it was being worked on in a lab in Wuhan, how it got, how it got, how it, how it was released and let out to infect humans I believe that it was some sort of very grave mistake. I really do. Um, when I was doing my training, my doctoral training, I had to do a lot of training in bioterrorism and things like that so that I was able to understand that there are things in the world, you know, I'm sure we've all, we all remember anthrax, you know, after September 11th, there was a big scare that those were types of things that we needed to worry about. Um, you know, what's, what could um, what types of weapons could be used against us as humans that we needed to start to think about that could be biological, like a virus or like anthrax or things like that? So is it possible that something like this could be done intentionally to humans? Yes, it is. Do I believe from the bottom of my heart that the coronavirus was done, that, that this was done to us intentionally? No, I don't. I think it was a very big accident that something went very drastically wrong in that lab. Do I believe there are people who know the truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you clarifying that and 
you know, you said that, you know, no matter what, you're just, you're just going to be honest and shed light on the truth. And that's just so important. And trust is really, really important because, you know, we're all in fear right now because, you know, a lot of us don't trust what's being said because it changes so often. So, you know, truth, the truth does matter. I couldn't agree more. Um, so it seems like you have all the answers. Can you tell me when social distancing and physical distancing, distancing is going to end? <laughs> I, wish I, had, <laughs> I wish I had the answers. And, you know, <laughs> um, I think it's challenging right now because it's different state to state, right? So we're the United States of America, but we're more like 50 different little countries now instead of 50 different states, you know, and everybody's decide making different rules. Everybody's reacting in different ways. And, you know, the truth is that we're not going to have, we're not going to have the ability to really research this and use the plethora of data that's going to eventually be available to us as researchers to say, Hey, um, you know, we were way off the mark with our need for social distancing. You know, we really could have backed off sooner or, hey, maybe we're going to learn that we should have taken, you know, been a little stricter or stringent with our criteria. So it's it's hard because when I look around, what I see is that I see a population of people whose fear is continuing to grow and the more that we're told to restrict ourselves, I think the more that the more fearful we all become. So when is it going to end? I, I honestly feel it's time for it to begin to end now, because like I mentioned, yes, social distancing is, is important. Yes, quarantine is important, especially if you have symptoms or you are a part, part of our vulnerable population, which are people who are older adults, 65 years and older, and people with exist pre-existing conditions. But so that social distancing, you know, should we be protecting everybody? Do the healthy, are the healthy people staying home really keeping other people safe? I don't really believe that's making a difference. So I think it's really difficult to say what's the right answer here. You know, I think we all would like to go back to normal and when is but when is that going to end it's going to be up to our government officials to decide when you know when the costs outweigh the benefits and the benefits outweigh the costs that's something we always talk about in research right when we think about what's ethical what's considered ethical here do the benefits of what we are doing outweigh the costs right and sorry I don't, if, I don't know if they really know the answer to that yeah, and I think it'll be, you know, over time it'll be telling as to, you know, what what where we went wrong. And I, I do think that I think we're gonna look back and say, I think that it was more it would have been more beneficial to keep the kids the kids in school rather than cut school short by two months or three months. Um, I think that the benefits do not outweigh the cost there by keeping them home. So I agree. Okay. I agree. And you know, what it's also doing is create, creating a population of children who are fearful. Yeah, that's, that's tough. But um, I know that my son is certainly not not himself right now. So we're we're completely I completely understand that, and I could relate to any other parent feeling that as well. Um, so my heart goes out to to those people as well. Um, so 
what about, I hear all this talk about the um, second wave of the disease. Will, what, do you fear that? Is that valid or what do you think about that? The second wave they say may come in the fall. Yeah. So there's a second, they say there may be a second wave of the disease coming. Now, you know, I read um, an article that was published on May 1st and they're saying, you know, it says the new, you know, something like the new coronavirus is likely to keep spreading for at least another 18 months to two years until uh, 60 to 70% of the population has been infected. Now, is that likely going to happen? Are 60 to 70% of the population likely to become infected? That's a possibility. So, but here's what this article doesn't explain. And I'm so grateful we're talking about this a little bit because, you know, what we need to remember is that when we are getting something from the news, it's like the telephone game that we used to play when we were kids. You know, so by the time the message is told by the last person, it sounds nothing like it's what what the original source stated. You know, so Just I always back up one second. Are we are we so the audience knows? Are we talking about the article we were reading earlier, the CNN CNN Health article that yeah, says the CNN Health article experts report. Expert report predicts up to two more years of pandemic misery. Yes. Years? Now, first of all, keep in mind. Now, when you read that headline itself, you know, I always like to say to people and I would when I was teaching my master's students, I would say things to them like consider the source. You know, when we're doing research and we're scientists and we're doing good research. What is the source that we want to reference and utilize if we're going to build you know, a theory, or we're going to quote something, or we're going to state something that we believe is scientifically important. We're going to go to the original source. We're so not going to use CNN is not a scientific source. No, they are not a scientific right. source. <laughs> they are interpreting, make they are creating their own interpretation of of information that has come from scientific sources. Right, and, and I think what they're really doing is is trying to get, elicit an emotional response for their readers yeah. so they get more. Viewers. Yes, because yeah. even when you read that headline to me just a moment ago, you hear that you you hear expert report report predicts up to two more years of pandemic misery, and then they choose that word misery, and then you read that and you hear it and you think, oh my god, what am I? What, two more years of misery, two more years of misery. That's what stands out to you, right? Two more years of misery, right? And so is but is the light is the is are, are up to 70% of the population going to become infected? Possibly. But see what this article doesn't state is that becoming infected does not mean you are going to get sick and that you have the disease. Being infected and having the disease are two very, very different things. So remember I mentioned that 25% of people at least who become infected will never get the disease. They will never become symptomatic. So there's, so let's say of that, let's take out 70%, let's take out just for even numbers, 60% of our population, all right? They're going to get infected. Well, 25% of that, a quarter of them are never going to exhibit symptoms. They're never going to get sick. Another 50% of on top of that so now three quarters of them are, they're only going to get mild symptoms. So, but when we say it like this, it sounds horrific. It sounds like doom and gloom. And this report, the experts, there is an expert panel, and I will say they are highly respected professionals in my field and, ver and related fields. 
So I certainly don't disrespect their opinions or any of the knowledge that they're sharing. But what they've done is come up with three possible scenarios of what the next wave of COVID-19 is going to look like. So I appreciate that those are scenarios, but let's keep in mind that those scenarios are all just possibilities. And in reality, none of them might come true. One of them might come true, but what is important is that you know, the article warns, it says, you know, we're warning that um, we should be prepared for the worst case scenario. Well, we should, but we shouldn't be scaring people because the reason we should be, be prepared is just for the safety of the general population. Our pub, a, a good public health infrastructure in any country in the world should be prepared at all times to protect the health of its population including in an emergency and pandemic type of scenario. So the fact that we may not have been equipped, maybe that's something that's going to be a takeaway for us as a country out of this, that our infrastructure just needed some improvement because we were not equipped when this all started. But it is important that we are ready for the worst case. Is the worst case scenario going to come true? I do not believe that it is going to. I could absolutely be wrong. It could come true, but I don't believe it will. But I do believe we should still be prepared for it because as a country, we should be ready. And as public health professionals, and I feel very strongly about this in my field, it's our duty to take care of you. It's our duty. And as a doctor of public health, I swore first and foremost to protect the greater good, to protect the health of the population as a whole. And I take that very sincerely and very much to heart. So we should be ready. I, I, I so basically appreciate that, um, and and I think that it is a big responsibility. But you know, you're the you're the government, and your responsibility is to take care of us, and that's by being prepared or yeah. any leadership really. So it's a child care director or the president of a school or what have you. It's their responsibility because they have that leadership role, and it's exactly. a lot I get. But you know, it's similar to like you know, if a event planner was playing an event you would expect that you're going to be safe at that event. You know, if something were to happen, they were going to have a contingency plan in place. You know, who knows the likelihood of something would happen, like a terrorist attack or a gun shooting, that, whatever. But they're, they're, you know, we're holding them responsible for keeping us safe, just like we're holding the government responsible for keeping us healthy and safe. Right? Exactly. That was really well said. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Good. I'm glad I, because I do generally feel safe and I want to keep feeling safe. So. And I guess another way to look at it is to kind of like how they predict the weather. Uh, when you see a hurricane coming in, they have all these different tracks. So the same way they have with the potential of what the virus may do, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. I mean, how many times has a hurricane come up through Florida and completely miss or just skim the coast? Uh, so, so basically, uh, people can, can kind of look at it like a weather forecast. Um, and then they can also look to the government and the health, um, the health professionals um, as the behind the scenes. We're ready we're going to take charge of what's happening. Um, but 
we don't have to tell the public everything. They don't need to know how many ventilators are being made behind the scenes or the contingency planning unless they show an interest. I mean, there should be some transparency on what's going on. Yes, I agree. So is that an easier way of what you said? Yeah, actually, as Marnie, as you were describing that, I was just sitting here smiling because I thought, I I love that. It's such a wonderful way to explain it. And yet, that's a very accurate way to explain it too. It really, that is what it is. We Do we know the answers? No, we don't. But we can make predictions to the best of our ability. But that's truly all they are. You know, when different models are being used in epi- by epidemiologists to make predictions, those predictions will look different based on just the data that has been incorporated into that particular model itself. So yeah, they're just like predict weather predictions. And I love the way you said it, that just like every year, you know, every year in Florida, they get ready for hurricane season. They board up their houses. They do all the things they do every year. And a lot of those years, they never get hit. Nothing ever happens, but they still take the measures anyway to be prepared to keep themselves and their homes safe. That's totally true. Um, When we're looking at the mindset of the people in the hurricanes or tornado alley, uh, they live kind of with a feeling of fear, but it's not to the panic that we're feeling globally right now. Um, So we kind of need to adopt that mentality on that Yes, we need to be prepared. Yes, this is a real concern, uh, but we can't worry about it every day. Um, I also, I also think it's it's important to address the fact that it's okay to feel feel fearful. It, it's okay. It's natural. It's part of um, the emotional experience. Um, and it's you know when people feel threatened, which. People feel deeply threatened by this disease because it's a real thing. Um, that's when fear comes into place. So it's okay to be fearful. Everyone's feeling that way. And I, I just don't want anyone to think, or, you know, at least my children to think that, it, that it's a bad feeling to have. Yeah, because we should, like you said, any feeling that we experience is very real. You know, perce- our perception is our reality. So if you're feeling fearful, then that's a real and valid feeling. What I don't want is people being, you know, I don't, I think that the media should be doing a better job at dissolving fears, not creating fears. I do feel a lot of the messaging, I feel we are being intentionally bombarded with fearful messaging. You know, just when we were all, when the three of us were talking about the headline of that news article alone, I mean, just, we could talk about just one headline about how much fear that creates. So I think it is something we have to continue to combat. It's just that there are so many things we could be doing to help ourselves combat fear. There are a lot of things we can be doing to make ourselves stronger and protect ourselves. But I don't see that again, you know, that piece of the puzzle in the greater in the greater picture of things here in the media is missing. You know, I, I wish that they had someone like me out there so I could just stand. So when someone answers a question, and I think to myself, oh, boy, that was terrible. Then I wish that I could just step in and say, OK, but let me just explain. 
here's what that really means. And that's why you don't have to be as, it doesn't sound as scary that way. <laughs> so next time I'm watching the news and I'm confused or when I'm pissed, I'm just going to call you. Okay. You can. I was going to say, I wish I would love to say to people, you know, please, if you need someone to talk to, and this is scaring you, please reach out to me. I just don't want people to be living in fear that they can't go out of their houses, that they can't live their lives. Well, with your unique background, both in the um, epidemiology and the holistic um, positive healing approaches, um, what are your best suggestions on, on how we can cope um, in regards to our mental health? Um, what would be your advice to parents, to, to our aging parents who are completely isolated and, and so lonely? I know. I worry about that stuff a lot. And it really, it's with a very heavy heart that I, I think about these things on a daily basis and what it is that I can be doing to be helpful. And, you know, that mental stress, it's just so important for us to remember that fear and stress are directly related, right? Fear compromises our immune systems, just like stress. So there is a direct connection between stress and our health and our immune system function. And stress disrupts that functional interaction between our nervous system and our immune system. And as soon as that happens, then that stress starts to weaken and impair our immune systems. So that stress-induced immune impairment can result in very negative and serious health consequences like reducing our ability to fight off viruses, slower healing processes, and reactivation of dormant viruses or pathogens that live in our bodies. And I'm sure that we all know and have heard different studies and reports, which are all very true. I used to do a lot of research in this field that state that chronic stress is associated with an increased risk of other serious things like cardiovascular diseases, stroke, mental health complications, type 2 diabetes, and some cancers. So, you know, so we really... Yeah. So not ahead. only, I'm sorry for interrupting, but no, it's really like, not only do these, you know, headlines and these articles and these news stories that elicit so much emotion intentionally, not only are they, are they affecting our mental health, but they're also affecting our physical health because our mental health affects our physical health. Exactly. So it's, it's really, they're doing way more harm than, than good. They are. And I'm so grateful we got to talk about this today because anything I can share to help people in this in this scenario is means the world to me, you know. So we need to combat stress by increasing our inner calm, but also by strengthening our immune systems. So I have a couple of great recommendations. And of course, you know, I'd encourage anybody to please, you know, reach out to me. I would love to talk about this more. And I'm working with a lot of my private clients right now to start to develop plans to protect their immune systems for themselves and their families. But I have a holistic approach because the definition of health is that it's a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being, not just an absence of disease or infirmity. So to me, by definition, health is something that we should be approaching holistically because all of those pieces are connected. So we should be thinking about our physical health, our emotional health, our social health and our environmental health. So I thought it'd be fun today. I thought, well, I could give a couple recommendations from my holistic approach that I would give. I would say if there's any, if I could focus on just a few recommendations and you said to me, what are your favorite things right now? 
what could anybody be doing? And these are great recommendations for kids, for any age adult, and also would be complementary to anything traditionally, any type of traditional or conventional treatments or protocols that you might be using. So on the physical side of things, you know, right now, most importantly, I mean, let's face it, this is not a surprise to anybody, but the truth is how we're treating our bodies right now is so incredibly important. So I'm sure I don't need to throw that out there that, you know, trying to incorporate lots of natural and healthy foods right now that are very healing for our bodies is super important. But on the supplement side of things, I would love to recommend a couple of things for everybody. And one of them is zinc. In particular, I recommend a liquid zinc sulfate as the particular form of zinc. Now, the reason I'm suggesting zinc for everybody is because it's a critical trace mineral for our immune systems. Without zinc, our immune systems can be either over or underreactive to the presence of invaders like viruses. Now, most of us, unfortunately, are deficient in zinc, so that's why I really like to recommend it. Most of us don't have enough of it, and it's really helpful for anybody. What it does is it actually weakens viruses inside of our bodies by making them slow and lazy, in turn making our immune systems very powerful and much more easily able to fight against them and kill them off. One of my other favorite recommendations, I take this every day, I'm actually taking it multiple times a day right now, is called lemon balm. It's also called Melissa, and lemon balm is a supplement. I like to use it in a, you can find it in a non-alcoholic tincture form, and it's wonderful because it targets both stress and your immune function. So I'll explain how. It is an incredible, incredible antiviral that can fight off many, many different kinds of viruses, and it's a wonderful natural way to deal with just stress in general. So whether it's stress because of what's going on right now in the world due to the pandemic, just general emotional stress, daily life stress, any type of dealing with that stuff, this is a wonderful thing. Lemon balm has soothing properties and the ability to support our adrenal glands. So, you know, then when I think about our environment, which is really important, right? Everything around us impacts our health, whether it's indoors or outdoors. So one of the great ways we can increase our inner calm is just by changing our environment. And you can do something simple, just like going outside. But I, you know, if you're looking for a recommendation, I do love to recommend essential oils. There is wonderful research published as recent as 2014, and even more recent that has concluded that aromatherapy is an effective tool for anxiety and stress. Some of the best stress-busting essential oils are things like lavender, wild orange, spearmint, and thyme. You can put it in a bathtub, in a diffuser. You can Google or go on Amazon and look up diffuser necklace. And for as cheap as I even looked earlier today, so I wouldn't be wrong, for as cheap as like $6.99, you can get a diffuser necklace on Amazon. There's also a really not a really wonderful combination of essential oils, clove, cinnamon, eucalyptus, rosemary, and lemon. And that combination all together is called thieves. And the reason it's called thieves is because actually during the time of the Black Plague, 
thieves or people, you know, thieves literally came and tried to rob the sick people and the bodies of the sick people, not to be morbid, but they used a certain blend of essential oils and herbs, and it actually kept them all from becoming sick. So none of them ever got the plague themselves. So to this day, so that's how the story turned into thieves and this group of essential oils got that name, but it is very effective very healthy, smells amazing, and a great way to cleanse your your home environment. And then of okay. course, we, yeah, and then we have to think about our social health. Like you said, just thinking about not being isolated, how to have creative ways to connect with one another. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I just really appreciate you talking about this Um and just to kind of summarize um, for the mental health, uh, you made those recommendations for the essential oils um, and also changing our environment. Um, we could go for our walks. Uh, we've seen the uptick in going to our local parks. And yeah. I know at least around in my neighborhood, um, I'm seeing neighbors that I never knew existed. Uh, so it, it's great. And I do see people saying hi, but they do have that physical distance. Um, so there's a little bit of social, but it, it's, um, but there's respecting each other's distances. Yeah, there really is. And I think that it's just so important to find those creative ways to connect. And like you said, going outside, those are things that also support our emotional health, you know, things like you know, if you're not into meditation and deep breathing practices, which I certainly promote and, you know, just going outside is just so incredibly helpful. It actually does promote healing. Well, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Rogers, for being a part of our podcast today. Uh, we sincerely appreciate your time and your expertise. And uh, we do look forward to talking to you again, hopefully on a more positive time in in our country and, and in our own um, mental health. So Dr. Rogers, can you just clarify, clear something up for me because I'm a little bit confused still. So are you saying that you believe there's a possibility that the virus was being studied in a lab in Wuhan and there was really no valid positive reason for them to be studying it? Can you explain if I'm correct there and it was probably intended for harm? Yes, I will definitely clarify. So what I'm saying is that, yes, like you just said, do I believe that the virus was being studied in a laboratory in Wuhan and that that is the reason and that somehow, some way it was released into the human population and able to infect us? Yes. Do I believe that, do I know exactly why they were studying the virus in this lab in Wuhan? No, I do not. But I do know as a good scientist, with who does ethical research in science and based on the information that has been shared with me by the colleagues that I trust around the world, I do believe that this research was being done intentionally with the intent to cause some sort of harm or negative outcome to who I cannot be certain and why I cannot be certain. You know, what's it's upsetting because I don't get paid by the government any longer. So I don't need to be fearful to speak the truth, but as scientists, depending on who we are working for and who we are being funded by, we are expected to align 
with the messages that they want to be shared with the masses and the general population. I don't work for anybody. I don't have another agenda. So I don't need to do anything except share the truth because that's my purpose in this lifetime. I came here to help and help and heal others. And I just want to speak the truth. So do I believe it was being studied intentionally? Absolutely it was. Do I believe it was released at this point that created this, what is now the pandemic? Do I believe that was done intentionally? No, I believe that was an accident. But do I believe that there was negative intent behind what was going on in the laboratory in Wuhan? Most likely. Okay. That makes sense. I'm not sure if it makes me feel better or worse, but the truth matters. I know. It doesn't make me necessarily feel better either. But it matters. And I think that there's lessons to learn from it in any way. So. And then it's really important to consider and be mindful of the sources you're getting information from. You know, and lastly, your mental health is is just as important, if not more, well, just as important than as your physical health because they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And also zinc, lemon balm, essential oils. Yeah, those are some really, really great ones. And of course, you know, I'm full of lots of suggestions. So I encourage anybody or all of you to, you know, reach out to me and we can talk anytime and I'll always be happy to come back and talk some more. What's, what's the best way to get a hold of you? I know you told me your Instagram handle, but I can't remember. Oh, yeah. So my business is called Healthy Transformations with Heart. And my Instagram handle is it's healthy transformations underscore heart because you only get so many characters and I could only fit that many. <laughs> so you can find me on there as Dr. Rogers. And we have a website, healthytransformationswithheart.com. You can find me there. Or you're certainly welcome to email me at just Elizabeth Ann Rogers at gmail.com. But I just really want to support everybody. So I'm happy to be helpful however I can. And again, I just wanted to, to thank you um, for taking this time um, to help ease um, people's fears uh, so we can move forward. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's been such an honor to be here with all of you. And I'm really grateful for an opportunity to be supportive to our community members and just help dissolve some fears. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I will get in touch with you probably on Instagram and hopefully we'll stay in touch. That sounds wonderful. Thanks, guys.